Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marks and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me, you idiot. Welcome everybody to the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is episode number 160. And my guest this week is Timothy Sunderland. Tim is the author of Rules for Giving, which is actually it's his debut novel, which is always very, very exciting for an author. And his book, Rules for Giving, just recently came out October 15th, 2016. So not only is it his debut novel, it is still uh, very, very new. You can still smell the, the, the hot ink on the page, I imagine. I don't know. Anyway, it's a terrific book, Rules for Giving, and Tim is, he's an outstanding writer. And the story is about Gavin Oliver and his girlfriend, Tilda, both of them teenagers who, in 1971, visit a California abortion clinic. The result is not what they expect, and the relationship doesn't survive the trauma. And following that experience, they tell no one what happened. 36 years later... Tilda's daughter Rose turns up in Gavin's life. Rose, as it turns out, is fleeing from her own demons, and she's returned to her mother's hometown armed with a bundle of letters to a mystery person. Now, for the next eight days, during a blistering August heat wave, Gavin relives that morning in the abortion clinic. As Gavin reels from bottles of wine to pitchers of mojitos to prescription painkillers, he uncovers old secrets and hidden alliances that threaten his business, his marriage, and his life. And uh, that, that's, that's the story of Rules for Giving. And that's my guest this week, Tim Sunderland, uh, who is a, just a, a terrifically, terrifically interesting dude. Uh, I had a really great conversation with him, which I'm going to share with you in just a second. But before I do that... Uh, I just want to let you guys know that his book, Rules for Giving, is available right now on Amazon.com. And I encourage you to go get yourself a copy of it because I really don't think you'll regret it. And before you go to Amazon, well, what, I, what I would first ask you to do is go to, the, go to the, uh, the official website of this podcast, which you'll find at martinlestrapsshow.com. Go to the shop page. Once you get there, you're going to see an Amazon banner at the top. Click that banner. It's going to take you to Amazon, and you can do all the same shopping you were otherwise going to do, including getting yourself a copy of Rules for Giving by Timothy Sunderland. And because you went through the official website of this podcast, Amazon in turn, we'll kick back a few pennies our way. And then we get to take those pennies and reinvest them back into the show. And that allows us to make the Martinless Trap Show podcast hour as good as we can possibly make it for you week after week after week. Also, if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, please go on iTunes. Subscribe. It's absolutely free. Uh, if you're listening right now because uh, you're, you're, you're friends of, T of Tim Sunderland, or maybe you're just a fan of his book, Rules for Giving, and you've never actually heard this podcast before, uh, well, first, thanks for joining. Uh, I hope you're enjoying yourself so far, and I can promise you you're going to enjoy my conversation with Tim Sunderland. 
But also, if you're new to the program, uh, please go to iTunes and subscribe because then every week a new episode drops into your iTunes list. It is absolutely free. You never have to think about it. It's my gift to you, just like magic. Poof, one day it disappears on your phone or your iPad or your computer or wherever you listen uh, listen to, to, to your podcast. If you're not an iTunes listener, because not everybody is an iTunes listener, you can also catch the show on Stitcher Radio. It's also free. You can find it at stitcher.com. And just uh, all 160 episodes are available. Uh, listen to all of them. Uh, d- uh, don't listen to them all in, in one sitting, because, you know, that's uh, at that minimum 160 hours worth of listening. And so, you know, savor it savor it there's no need to to binge listen to 160 episodes but either way it's available on stitcher.com and if neither of those options does it for you then of course there's always the old-fashioned way which is by going to the official website martinlestrapsshow.com where again all 160 episodes are available same on itunes actually uh every episode of the podcast is available on all three of those mediums. So whichever whichever makes the most sense to you, I'd encourage you I'd encourage you to do that. So uh, so there's that. Uh, again, my guest is Timothy Sunderland, and uh, he and I we're, we're from the same hometown. We're from Rancho Cucamonga, which is in the Inland Empire, which is part of uh, San Bernardino County. So uh, believe it or not, it's 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 a it's relatively rare that I get to have somebody on the podcast who's actually from from my same hometown so it's a uh, it's uh, it's 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 something of a unique pleasure so it was really great talking to Tim we had a great chat and I'm going to share that with you right this very second so if all of that sounds good to you then please enjoy my conversation with the author of Rules for Giving Timothy Sunderland Uh, I'm a native Californian. In fact, I'm second generation on my mother's side. Uh, she was born in downtown Los Angeles. My father moved here when he was about two. He was born in Illinois. Uh, I grew up uh, in the San Gabriel Valley, uh, just east of Los Angeles, probably just about 15 or 20 minutes outside of downtown. Uh, it was. Uh, it started out white bread America, uh, but that area of, of Los Angeles, uh, east of Los Angeles, has, has gradually changed over the years. So um, I ended up growing up in a, in a largely Hispanic community that, uh, that started turning Asian when uh, my family moved out when I was 16. So that was kind of some of the background I had. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, I, I got to the point where I, I spoke some passable Spanish. I could actually hold my <laughs> own. Um, Anybody who's read my novel, Rules for Giving, uh, will probably say, okay, that author went to Catholic school, and they are absolutely right. <laughs> um, I'm a cradle Catholic. Uh, in fact, I grew up in a, uh, a family that, that went to church every Sunday and um, uh, went to Catholic schools up until my sophomore year in high school, uh, and I've got the scars to prove it. <laughs> uh and um, in fact, the Catholic Church is, is responsible for uh, initially getting me published. I published a poem when I was in the third grade in the Tidings, which is a Catholic newspaper in Los Angeles. That was my, my first publication. Uh, and there were many years between that one and the second one. But uh, <laughs> that, 
that's that's kind of uh, I, in fact I forgot about that that for a long time and then one day I realized wow I I was published when I was like eight years old it was a it was a Thanksgiving poem so um, uh, yeah I guess I could go back as far as that <laughs> that's actually a pretty impressive start because I I, uh, I I know with myself when I when I uh, when I kind of reflect on my childhood in terms of of writing there's always a part of me that that that's looking for you know, I, I'm trying to see if there were seedlings of me being a, a writer when I was a kid, because I didn't really pick it up uh, in a in a genuine way until I was until I was 18. So I always feel like I'm behind, you know, behind the curve, like I'm trying to catch up. Because in my mind, most writers they've been doing it since uh, since they were a kid. So since you published a poem uh, uh, as a kid, I'm curious, did you uh, at that early? You said it was third grade, by the way. Excuse me. Did you say it was in third grade? In third grade, yes. So in third grade, was it uh, at that point, did you have like any thoughts about writing or being a writer or was this, was it just like a school project that uh, you didn't uh, uh, put much, um, I don't know, writing significance into in, in terms of identifying as a writer at that point? Yeah, at that time, I was just really concerned with uh, making the words rhyme. Um <laughs> I, at some point, and I really can't tell you when it happened. I mean, I've always uh, been pretty bookish. Um, although I, uh, every time I read one of those lists of a hundred books that you should have read, I, I feel woefully underread. Um, <laughs> but um, I just, I feel like I, I just got to take that list and go right down the list, and that lasts for about an hour, and then <laughs> I lie down and it goes away. But um, at some point, I think probably in high school, I did take a couple of creating creative writing classes in high school. And um, writing was something I entertained, but it was always one of those things that I would think about for a while and I'd forget about it. Hmm. Uh, think about it and then forget about it. <laughs> and um, uh, I took a few more classes in college um, and kind of had this idea that maybe after my career, I would uh, I would focus my energies on writing, but really just didn't think about it too much. I um, um, the uh, when I was 16, my parents moved out to Rancho Cucamonga, which is even farther out. Um, actually, your stomping grounds. Absolutely. Um, yes. Uh, so this is about 1970 uh, when I was introduced to public high school. Uh, which was completely different for me because I'd been uh, I'd been a Catholic kid all my life, um, and um, somewhere along the way, I think in the uh, one of my senior year in high school, I uh, I read a novel by Joseph Wamba called The New Centurions. In fact, it was his first novel, um, and decided I wanted to become a police officer, um, which I did became a police officer and that lasted about 19 months and I crashed and burned. Oh, wow. Um, difficult job, j j really difficult job. And I think at the end it was kind of by mutual agreement that this just was not, not my calling in life. Um, but I wish you know, at that time I had, I didn't realize it and I was really shattered. I was the ripe age of 22, I think, uh, and got, had gotten fired from my, my first and my dream job. And I was, <laughs> oh, uh, I, I was pretty aimless. Um, and I remember I was uh, I was reading, and the writer of this article will probably read it and get pissed off. But I was reading a a profile of Charles Bronson in Playboy magazine, <laughs> and I thought this is pure crap. I could do better than this, and that was that was kind of the epiphany. It was like, oh yeah, 
I used to think I could write. Um, and, and part of it also came from the fact that being a police officer, the job is there's so much writing involved uh, in being a police officer in, in putting together a narrative and structuring uh, a report and you know, leading a reader down this path to say, this is what happened and this is who did it. And this is why, um, that, um, I, uh, I, I found that, uh, that that wasn't far off, um, to be able to do that. Uh, at least I thought that way. Uh-huh. And, um, and that's when I started writing, uh, a little bit more earnestly, not quite then I, I realized that, um, one of the one of the ways I learned how to write reports as a police officer is I, I I worked as a dispatcher prior to that at a police department and one of my jobs was to go through and summarize reports into about two paragraphs, um, and uh, so I, I read a lot of reports and I and I always felt that the reason I I was able to write reports pretty well is that I'd read a lot of them and I thought okay I'm going to go back to what I used to do as a kid and read as much as I possibly can. Um, that was kind of a, a period uh, after the police department, which involved a lot of beer and a lot of dope smoking and a lot of other <laughs> things that um, I, I won't admit to publicly, um, although there are a few times I should have been dead. Um, and, uh, and a lot of reading, uh, just read stuff that I can't even go back and read now. I just I thought I was a much younger man and willing to suffer through uh, through much worse prose <laughs> at that time of my life. Now I don't have I, I'm thinking. You know, I'm 62 now. I'm thinking I don't have the time to read this again. Um, but uh, I did a lot of reading and, and started messing around and experimenting with uh, some short stories and um, um, ultimately got married uh, and uh, and experimented some more. And uh, um, let's see, it was about 1982. Uh, my wife's uh, brother, my wife's sister was married to a bicycle racer. And I went to a couple of local races and I met this guy that edited a local bicycle racing newspaper in Southern California. And I was talking to him and, and he said, would you like to write some articles? And I said, sure. And, uh, um, it kind of took off from there. I'd actually been published prior to that in the LA times. I wrote a, uh, an article in the LA times about, um, uh, Italian POWs during World War II that had relocated in the Rancho Cucamonga area, as a matter of fact. And, um, and that article got published in the LA Times. So I've been published a few times, and I started writing these regular articles about bicycle racing. Uh, and next thing I know, I was getting published by Bicycling Magazine and a few other publications outside. Um, and I realized, you know, this, this fiction thing is way too damn hard. <laughs> uh, nonfiction is a little bit easier. And, uh, um, I sort of got away from what, what took me to writing, but, uh, in a way it, it still kept me in writing, um, uh, wrote about bicycle racing for two or three years, which was kind of a good time to be in bicycle racing as a journalist. Um, the Olympics came to Los Angeles in 1984. Bicycle racing was a small enough sport that you could go out to a local race race and see Olympic caliber talent. Oh, wow. Um, it was, it, it was pretty easy to do. Uh, in fact, a couple of, of local racers from Southern California were in the Olympics. Um, and, and so you got to rub elbows with these people who were top-notch athletes. And um, also about the same time, I met an editor from Motor Trend who uh, coincidentally, again, lived in Rancho Cucamonga. See, we, we're really a hotbed um, out here. <laughs> and um, 
so I was able to eventually write articles for some of the specialty magazines they had, uh, Corvette annuals, uh, even wrote for Motor Trend. Um, and uh, at one point, I was on the um, the press pool for Motor Trend magazine, which was really nice because about every three weeks, I got a new car to drive. <laughs> oh, wow. For probably a year and a half, two years, I never drove my own car. I just went from one car to another. Uh, interesting and uh, unique opportunities. <laughs> um, I was actually curious. And, and, uh, so I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you up, but I, I was very curious because um, uh, uh, the Los Angeles Times, Outside Magazine, Motor Trend, uh, covering the, the Olympics in 1984, these are all super, super impressive uh, accomplishments uh, for for uh, for for anybody, let alone somebody who's uh, engaged in you know, writing and journalism. And uh, and on the one hand, there's um, I, I there, there's almost like a, a humility as you talk about it. But I'm I'm listening to all of this, and I'm extraordinarily uh, uh, impressed. And so I I can't help but wonder, you know, um, how what was it difficult? I mean, you know, it, it sounds like part of it was uh, meeting the right people, maybe being uh, in the right place at the right time. But uh, but it certainly, um, it's not all just about you know, happenstance, like you certainly were, were putting in the, putting in the work. So, um, ultimately like getting into these publications, what was the, what was that process like? Was it, uh, was it easier than you thought? Was it harder than you thought? Were there tangible, uh, uh, I don't know, n not rules, but were there, was there sort of a checklist? Like if somebody wanted to follow the same path that, that you could kind of give them some, some thoughts on it? Um, well, I think that uh, be willing to work for peanuts is <laughs> is is probably uh, uh, a good indicator. You know, especially well, let's just forget fiction because you're not even going to make peanuts writing fiction uh, <laughs> uh, unless you get lucky. And I still have yet to get to the, get to that spot. But um, you know, there's just a lot of of low entry level. I mean, when I started writing for this newspaper, uh, which, by the way, within a year I was the editor of that newspaper. Oh, wow. Um, and it it was still pretty small time. I mean, it had a circulation of about fifteen hundred, um, but it uh, it did have it did get into the hands of some the right people, Bicycling Magazine and a few others. But um, you know, I wasn't making a lot of money. Uh, it, it was enough to. Uh, you know, between my wife and I, we were able to make the house payment and feed mm -hmm. the kids. But um, one of the things is just be open, be open to the possibilities. Um, one of the things, and I, I, I still refer back to this, as a police officer, I was trained uh, and learned, was whenever you're walking into a situation, don't stereotype it. Don't say, okay, this is what this is. Mm. This, is um, this is a family fight. These are two lovers. Keep your mind like a clear lake and be open to all the possibilities and look for all the possibilities because quite often you're going to find what you never expected to find. Mm. And, um, and, and writing is like that too. You just, you gotta, you gotta keep your mind like a clear lake and, and look for the possibilities. And, and even as in terms of marketing yourself as a writer, um, one of the things, a couple of the things I found, I just happened to be in California. Um, in the Olympics in 1984, 
which was a pretty good showcase because uh, I was lucky enough that uh, there were some Southern California writers, uh, both men and women that, that uh, were up and comers. And I reported on them and I was able to call up magazines and say, I can give you an article on this person, or I can give you an article on that person or that, that event, um, which sort of opened some doors for me. And, um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a joke and I'm sure you've heard it. What do you call a stubborn writer? I've actually published. never heard this one. Yeah. What do you call a stubborn writer? Published. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was, that was part of it too. Just, uh, don't give up. And, um, uh, I, I just didn't give up. I, I, uh, but in some respects it was relatively easy. I remember the first article I wrote for bicycling magazine. I called up the editor, um, and she happened to know my name and, uh, I pitched her a story and she gave me the assignment over the phone. Um, and, and it, uh, so I was pretty happy with that and, and I, I felt pretty proud of myself. I, uh, uh another article, uh, the second piece I wrote for the LA times, I, um, uh, I just happened to be on vacation and came across, um, uh, this, uh, this situation at a campground. And I thought this would make a great story for the LA times. The LA times used to have a section called the view uh -huh. and, um, uh, kind of a human interest type, uh, stories and, uh, and, and wrote the editor a, a short note, mailed it off to him. This was in the days, days before email. And, um, uh, he said, great. Yeah, that'd be a good story. And, uh, and wrote the story and it was just, I thought, but again, it was keeping my mind like a clear lake, keeping open to the possibilities of here's a story there and here's a story there and they might be interesting. That's really great advice. Cause it, yeah, cause let's say, let's say for, let's say at that point in your life, you were hell bent on becoming a novelist, then you might not even, you, you might not have seen these opportunities or it might not have occurred to you that these were great opportunities to, to take advantage of. So that's, that's outstanding advice. And like with myself also, when I, uh, when I think about my own, uh, my, my own writing career and more specifically when I kind of think about the, uh, how my, my writing and my, my storytelling, uh, instincts, um, evolve, uh, I find myself more and more reflecting on the things that, the things that entertains me growing up that, uh, that it, at the time wouldn't necessarily occur to me that these are sort of planting some seeds that are going to affect me as a writer, you know, later. So, so for example, when I was a kid, I was just a, just over the moon, huge, huge fan of professional wrestling. Just my, my days began and ended with, with, with Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant and Jimmy Superfly Snuka and Saturday and Sunday afternoons. And, and, and I wasn't thinking in terms of, you know, this thing that entertains me will 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 impact me later as a as a storyteller when I'm thinking about you know character arcs and uh, and and stories and you know uh, uh, heels and baby faces and things that you know things that happen in wrestling that I just enjoyed it. But then when I you know when I write stories, so often sometimes subconsciously, sometimes very much in the front of my brain, I find myself reflecting on things you know just storytelling principles that I learned from professional wrestling that, that helped me with, with my storytelling now. So, um, so when you reflect on your own storytelling, particularly uh, as, as a fiction writer, um, do you, are there things that you can look back on as a kid, things that entertained you that you realize, Oh, this actually taught me things about storytelling that I didn't realize I was learning at the time. That, that's a really good question. I, I, my, 
my fallback answer when people ask me that question is I tell them, well, uh, I'm at least three quarters Irish and Irish, the Irish are great for telling stories. Uh, my father was a great storyteller. Uh, and, uh, if that's one thing I got from him, uh, <laughs> although he didn't do it professionally, but you know, my father was always, was always up for a joke, always up for a good joke. And I think that's, that's probably initially where it came from, but I, I think getting, uh, even deeper than that, uh, it's, it's, um, it's just the drama. It's just the human drama of a story. I mean, I, I was at the LA Times um, Festival of Books last weekend, and there was a T-shirt there, and I, I really wanted to get get one. It said, uh, "Bad choices lead to good stories." <laughs> <laughs> I thought, yeah, that's that's a that's a really good one. And um, uh, I just look at at things like, for instance, during my time uh, reporting on bicycle racing. Uh, and one story just stands out to me particularly. Uh, it, it was a drama between these two racers. And uh, uh, th- there is a screenplay in there. And and I keep telling myself, Tim, you're going to write that screenplay because it was this story of human drama. And it, it just uh, – it had it had conflict. It had fights. There were um, confrontations and, and, and immense tenderness. Hmm. Uh, at the end, it was just, it almost brought a tear to your eye to see how it ended. And, um, it, it was just amazing. And I, and I keep telling myself, I'm going to return to that story someday. Um, the, um, there were things that happened to me as a police officer and, and the, see the problem with writing about, about, um, anything about police officers is that tends to take over the story. Mm. Um, you know, it, it quickly turns into a Joseph Wamba or a Michael Conley story, but th- that's only, at least the stories I have are only, that's part of the story. That's not really, I mean, the fact that the guy was a police officer, that's part of the story, but this is what really happened over here. Um, I haven't been able to deal with that yet. And I, I haven't read anybody that does deal with it, that, uh, as soon as you, you introduce the fact that the guy was a police officer involved in law enforcement, bingo, that becomes the story. That's mm-hmm. where people want to go it's um i kind of liken it to um um there was a chinese restaurant to uh, near me and um they introduced a dish of orange chicken and bacon <laughs> which kind of kind of sounds interesting but it was really a flop because you can't take two strong tastes like that orange chicken and bacon and put them together it just doesn't work and and writing uh, a, a story in which one of the characters happens to be a police officer just doesn't work because you've got these strong tastes and they just they tend to cancel each other out. Uh, that, that's a good analogy I can give you for that one. That's an interesting point. Are, are there um, if you if you if at some point down the line you decided to to go ahead and write a story about a police officer because you do have so much personal experience? Are there are there are there stories about police officers that 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 you personally experience, but you don't see them out there in uh, in, in novels or or television or, or or film? Yeah, yeah, I, I I've seen some stories. I mean, some of them are just um, different, unique. Um, uh, 
I haven't really thought about that question to tell you the truth. There's one uh, that I've I've been I've worked on. I actually worked on. It's got a a point of view problem, but it was a short story about a uh, a gay police officer in Fontana of all places. Uh-huh. And um, and uh, I'm 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 still working on. It. I, th- I think it has some promise. I think it has some possibilities. Oh, well, that's cool. That's cool. So so you were a police officer for uh, you said 19 months. Right. And then also you you got into marketing for uh, if I'm not mistaken for for 20 years. And I'm very curious about this uh, in large part because I want to know how closely related your life was to Don Draper and Mad Men when you were uh working in in marketing. So uh tell me a little bit about uh your your career as a in in the field of marketing. Okay, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to confess. Uh, first of all, that I've never watched Mad Men. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> it's just not been on my on my radar. I um, actually, uh, my career in marketing, I can directly relate to being a writer because um, if if you're a writer and you're not you're not making it big time, then you have to fill in the gaps. Mm-hmm. And uh, and one of the things I did, like a lot of writers, is I worked for advertising agencies, writing copywriting for brochures and and uh, and working on other projects that that involved some creativity. And um, I was uh, working for one agency. Uh, in fact, I used to ghostwrite a column for the owner of the agency, and uh, I had. She called me up one day and we were working on a project and um, the account manager in, in, in the, of the project, the guy that basically was the uh, orchestrator who made it, uh, went out and found the clients and put together the projects, uh, quit. And uh, the owner of the agency said to me, would you like a job? And I said, doing what? She said, being an account manager. I said, what's that? And two months later, I had business cards that said I'm an account manager. I had absolutely <laughs> no idea what I was doing. Um, but I did learn, I did learn. And, uh, I worked for about 12 years for one agency, um, this agency in Upland. And, um, and then I, uh, struck out on my own and I, I did it for another 10 years, uh, running my own agency, albeit very small. Uh, it was, um, uh, that was probably the sleepier part of my career, uh, Working for another agency, in fact, uh, that experience gave me some some major fodder for rules for giving, um, because I eventually became a partner of the agency and uh, got involved in this partnership that turned out to be the partnership from hell. Uh, it, it was like a game of sur- it was like a game of Survivor. There were uh, alliances, there were backroom deals um, amongst the partners. You'd get thrown off the island. Uh, and finally, after about a year of being a partner, I just said, you know what? Life is too short. And I, I quit. I left and ultimately started my own agency. But, uh, but that experience, uh, I guess what I did is I took that experience and said, what if I had decided to stay at that agency? Uh, and, and what if I had prevailed in the, in the partnership wars? Um, and that kind of came, became one of the stories and rules for giving. Oh, that's cool. I, I see. That's something that uh, as a writer myself, um, I love, I love doing that. Cause there's uh, on the one hand, you know, I, uh, and I know there's a lot of writers who do this where, you know, you, you have a personal experience and then, uh, you, you take that experience and you put it into, in, into a story and, and you layer it with some, uh, some fiction, but ultimately at the core of it is something you personally experienced. But the other thing that I really love doing in storytelling is I had an experience that went one way, but I'm fixated on 
what if it went this way? What would that have looked like? What would it have felt like? And uh, and then you know, kind of writing a story from from that perspective. And uh, I think there's so much. Um, I don't know. There's just so much sort of fertile material and 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 just letting your mind wander into you know, what if I would have made a left instead of a right? And then and then you know, looking at all the the best and, and worst case scenarios. There's a lot of really great. Uh, storytelling in that uh but also you said you started your your own firm and, and again for me very similar to you know uh getting published in the LA Times and Outside Magazine and Motor Trend and covering the Olympics that's a very impressive thing that comes off as a it, it, it um it, it almost feels like uh it's it's probably so normal to you that uh that that you probably that you probably it's easy to take for granted that that's a very impressive thing for for somebody like myself. So I would love to hear just a little bit about what goes into starting your own marketing firm. Um, another good question. I I think it's I think like anything. Um, if you do anything for long enough, uh, and sometimes you don't even have to do it for that long, it becomes sort of ordinary. Like, yeah, we did that. I did that. That 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 happened. Um, uh, I, I once had a, um, I, I interviewed a guy for a local business magazine. Uh, he was a, a Vietnam vet and, uh, in, in, I think he had three tours in Vietnam. He was a helicopter pilot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he was the guy who, who flew the big Hueys, uh, the, the big ones. I, there weren't Hueys. I'm, I'm not sure what they were, but they were the big double prop helicopters, you know, the prop in front, the prop in back and carried 30 guys and and he and the the bad news was those things don't carry any guns Mm. so when you're going in there you're going in naked and uh one of his tours of vietnam he uh he managed to get two major medals i think a distinguished flying cross and and some other medal within about a week of each other and um for him it was just the the two things were just in fact, he gave me his definition of a hero. He said a hero is a, is somebody that's in the wrong place at the wrong time and manages to do the right thing. Hmm. And I think in, in a lot of endeavors in life, including starting my own agency, I just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, and I did the right <laughs> thing. Um, or at least for the time I did the right thing. Um, it was uh, I looked at my options, and I said, I really don't have... Uh, I have a couple of opportunities. I have these clients that are willing to stay with me and, uh, I really, uh, you know, I'm sort of got combat fatigue and I don't want to go working for anybody else cause I've been burned. Uh, so, uh, gosh, I think I could start my own agency and, uh, and that's what I did. I mean, at the time it was, uh, th- this was my option. This to me was the best possible option I had. Um, and it, it quickly became again, ordinary, just something you do. This is what, this is what you did. This is what you had to do. And in terms of uh, uh, having a, a marketing agency, um, uh, generally speaking, what what did a like a, just a kind of a normal day in the life of a, of that particular career? Kind of what did that look like? How much writing was involved? Uh, how much uh, storytelling were you able to to draw on when uh, when when doing this particular job? That was the that was one of the things that. Um, I, I found it easy to, uh, well, I, I, I missed it because, uh, I was always, uh, I mean, I was always involved in putting together, um, uh, videos and commercials and, and print ads and, and various campaigns. But the thing I was always looking for was the stories. Um, what were the stories here? 
uh, with 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 clients. Um, and I had some interesting clients. I had one client that manufactured uh, what are commonly called clean rooms. These are uh, ultra clean facilities that uh, ultra clean enclosures that people use in manufacturing of medical equipment. And, uh, you see them in laboratory environments and things like that. But my question wanted to be because some of these people use these things for unique applications. Um, you know, what was the story behind it? I mean, as it turned out, this little sleepy client in Fontana built clean rooms for NASA. Oh, wow. NASA, for goodness sakes, okay? <laughs> this is a big deal. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the NASA projects we couldn't talk about. Oh. Couldn't talk about it. But there were a couple. But I had to drag them out of the uh, the clients kicking and screaming. Uh, <laughs> I used to talk to the salespeople. Give me a story. What are you working on right now? And... Uh, uh, one of the, although it did turn out to be gratifying because I went to work for a, uh, one of my clients was, a an entity in Claremont called Pilgrim Place. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's, um, they've been in Claremont over a hundred years. Uh, and it's a retirement community for, um, uh, retired clergy and missionaries. And, uh, the people that live there. Uh, let me give you an example. It, it, there's probably, I think there's 350 residents at Pilgrim Place. Uh, these are the kind of people that have worked with Cesar Chavez, uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, there was a uh, there was a lady there who, when she was a Catholic nun, was voted uh, one of the most influential women of the year by Ms. Magazine. Oh, wow. For her work in the Sanctuary Project. She was actually convicted in uh, 1987 of uh, in federal court of conspiracy to violate immigration laws. Um, ultimately was sentenced as a nun to five years of probation um, because the judge knew that any stiffer sentence just was not going to fly with the public. Mm -hmm. um, there was another guy there, and uh, this was a particularly poignant moment for me. Every year, the pilgrims would have, that's, that's what the residents are called. They're called pilgrims. They refer to themselves as pilgrims. They would have a, uh, a lot of these, many of the, of the uh, residents were involved in, in various peace and justice um, projects in their careers. Uh, in various times in their careers, there was a gentleman, he's there, still there today. Um, his name is Chris Hartmeyer. He was the, um, he started the California Farm Workers Ministry. And ultimately became the first executive director. He's a Methodist minister of the um, uh, United Farm Workers Ministry, which is the nationwide organization. And I came across his display in this Peace and Justice exhibit, and there was a black and white news photo. It was probably taken by some newspaperman, newspaper photographer, of uh, Chris Hartmeyer giving communion to Cesar Chavez. Oh wow! When Cesar Chavez. Um, broke his fast in 1968, which in itself is a historic photo and just wants to take your breath away. Except standing right next to Cesar Chavez is Bobby Kennedy. Oh, wow. And I, I saw this photo and I, I had to sit down. And I'm thinking, my God, the stories behind these experiences are just amazing. These are, this truly is history here. Um, and it was just, it was a fascinating client and one of the clients that I really miss. Um, I'm still in touch with them. I still, uh, I meet some of the pilgrims. I have coffee with them and what have you, but, uh, just amazing stories there. That is really amazing. Are, are you still involved in the, in the world of marketing? Uh, actually I, um, uh, 
uh, just recently took a job. I've only been there about a month, and uh, there's a dead nun laughing someplace, by the way. Uh, I took a job with Catholic Charities um, (laughs) uh, involved in communications and development. Now, what we didn't cover earlier was the fact that I I walked out of the Catholic Church when I was 17 years old, and I haven't been back except for weddings and funerals. (laughs) Um, But I was... um, uh, sort of got to the point where the agency wasn't feasible anymore. I lost a major client when they were acquired by a publicly held company mm-hmm. and uh, just decided, you know, I, I might have to go to work for somebody else now, which was something I never thought I'd do again. But, hey, you know, you do what needs to be done sometimes. Sure. And um, uh, I was pretty proud of myself. I, I, I got on the Internet. I was uh, going through a couple of job sites, and I found this opening at Catholic Charities in San Bernardino. Uh, for a communications and development person. And um, uh, the thing that was <laughs> that kind of tipped me off that how I was going to get this job was that they, they uh, the uh, the position required required some knowledge of a uh, program called Donor Perfect. I'd had a brushing with Donor Perfect at Pilgrim Place. That was one of the that was a program they used for their donors. And I, 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 had, I dabbled in it. When I say dabbled, I mean, I really just dabbled. Mm-hmm. But I put that in my note to the, uh, the HR person at Catholic Charities, which got me a phone call and got me an interview um, and ended up getting the job. So I've been there for about a month now. And that's, that's how I pay the bills. Between my wife and I, that's how we pay the bills. She has a job. And, and, um, uh, and right now I'm trying to rearrange my, my schedule so I can still write. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I know I could do. I just, I've got to get the discipline to be able to do it again um, in a slightly different form than I've done it before. It It, it is a tricky balance that, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, I, I think, I think most, most writers, uh, you know, myself included, you know, we have, uh, we have a day job and then we find, we find hours in the day uh, to, to, to work on our writing. And, and I know for, uh, I, I would venture to say for, for many, if not most, aspiring writers who never actually take that step to actually doing it a big part of it is just not knowing how to to find the time in your day to do it and then even when uh, when you get a writer like yourself who who does take the initiative to find that time and then do it then the next challenge is to continue to to find that time and to to, to continue to do it and and so um i i think it's, it's it's a great point but it's also an important point that's that's uh that that's worth talking about because I, again I think for the people who who want to write but haven't assume there's not enough time and maybe they see uh, other writers and figure they have more time than I do so that's that's why they're able to do it uh, but the truth is I think uh, all of us with few exceptions all of us who write you know we we find that we essentially as you said kind of find that discipline to find time in the day even if it's only a few minutes here or there. Um, and, 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 to the week that we're able to kind of, uh, you know, focus, focus on our writing now. Uh, so, so, okay. So in your case, you, uh, in, in the early, so, well, you started with, uh, with poetry in the third grade <laughs> and, and then, uh, and then you got into, uh, you know, nonfiction writing where, you know, as we, as we talked about, and there was the Los Angeles times outside magazine, motor trend magazine. Uh, you, you covered the, the 1984 Olympics. Uh, you got into into marketing, so you know many many years of, of, of storytelling and writing, ultimately in the vein of of nonfiction. Uh, but in uh, in two thousand and eight, you you threw your weight 
fully into fiction writing. Uh, and then, uh, and then later down the road in 2013, uh, you had some, uh, some really nice, nice success in the New York city midnight story, uh, short story challenge. Um, so I would, I would love to, to, to hear, hear your thoughts on sort of the transition of spending, uh, at that point, uh, most of your life with, you know, nonfiction writing and storytelling and then transitioning back into, into fiction writing, which was the thing that you said at some point, uh, you, you'd had a, an interest in. So what was that like? Well, I think I always kept, even when I was writing for Motor Trend and, and those publications, uh, I always kept in the back of my mind that I, I, I want to write a novel. I want to write more than one novel. There's a lot of stories out there. Um, and um, as most often happens, uh, something strikes you uh, when you when you don't expect it, you least expect it. And uh, I was, uh, I remember I was playing golf uh about a month, uh, let's see, this would be in October, September, I think it was the end of September uh, in 2008, it was blistering hot, and uh, I would uh, usually go out on Friday mornings at the crack of dawn and do nine holes at Upland Golf Course, Upland, Upland Hills, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I, I had this, I guess you call it an epiphany, I ran into somebody um at the golf course who I thought, and by the way, networking takes place at the golf course. Don't let anybody <laughs> fool you. Um, somebody who I thought had either moved out of the area or was more likely dead. And, uh, uh, this was a person from a past life. Uh, I kind of want to, I don't want to go into details. I want to protect the guilty. Um, <laughs> but, um, and I had this epiphany. I, I, you know what, this, th- th- that person was from a past life and a past story. And I thought, I can make this story work. Uh, and in fact, I can take it with another story in my life involving the ad agency. I can combine those two, and I think they're going to make a pretty damn good story. Um, and uh, from that point on, I was sort of a, a man possessed. Um, I, I had pretty much given up. Uh, the beginning of my marketing career sort of spelled an end of my writing career, at least writing for publication. Um, I was still writing, uh, in various capacities, uh, as a marketer, but, uh, but not for publication. Um, and, uh, I, I used to tell people that whenever I got the urge to write for publication, I'd lay down until it went away. <laughs> but, um, I, I just realized that this, this had possibilities as a story. And, uh, about a month later, I just said, well, this is not going to happen unless I sit down and write it. And that's when I started writing. And, uh, ultimately I think it took me, took me pretty much five years to write the book. Uh, it took me, I think I wrote the novel in about three years and I spent another two years editing and rearranging it, uh, considerably. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and let's see about 2013, I finally was, was happy that I, I had what passively was a novel and I started to market it and I spent about two years marketing the novel, uh, to various literary agencies, um, and agents and just couldn't get anybody. I got a couple of, uh, a, a couple of, uh, people, you know, bit the hook, mm-hmm. uh, looked at it. Uh, but ultimately no one decided to publish it. My wife, uh, at some point my wife just said, you know what, you're not going to be happy if you don't self publish this. And, um, she said, if you don't see it in print, you're not going to be happy. And, and, uh, I had really not entertained self-publishing. I think uh, a lot of, a lot of writers sort of look down on it, but it's, there's an interesting story there too, by the way, um, ultimately decided that this is, this is the way I'm going to go. 
and uh, published it, and it came out. Uh, I think it went on Amazon in October. <clears throat> yeah, I, I. So everything you're saying, I, re- I relate so much to, and I was actually very curious about this, uh, uh, about your your decision to go, uh, you know, and publish independently. Um, because, you know, cause, uh, cause myself, I, uh, I've published all of my novels, uh, independently, but I came to that decision very similar to the way you did where with my, with my first book, I'd spent, uh, a considerable amount of time, you know, uh, querying agents and, and publishers and trying to go that, uh, traditional publishing route. And a, a big part of the reason why I, I wasn't considering, uh, independent publishing is very much like you said, there was there was definitely a, a stigma, especially within the the writing and publishing community, you know, and that stigma being sort of born in. Well, if you were any good, you'd have a publisher, and if you have to do it yourself, then then it must not be good enough to get a publisher. And so I think because that stigma was so prevalent, uh, a lot of writers, you know, like you and I, sort of didn't necessarily want to, um, you know, take that leap just yet uh, at the time. And then eventually, we got to the point where. Uh, you know, we want to see this story in print. And, uh, and you know, like in my case, and, and I'm sure you could probably relate, I was very confident that I'd written a good book. And I felt like, you know, if I, if I stick to this long enough, eventually somebody's going to publish it. But then I started thinking, what if, what if that's, what if that's 10 years? What if that's 15 years down the road? Will I be happy that I, that I, that I sat on this book for 10 years, almost stubbornly, waiting for a publisher when I could have, you know, published it myself and then started on the next one and published that. And I could have had a whole kind of career going. So I completely relate to all of that. But then the other, the other connection I'm making, and I wonder if you made a similar connection is that the, uh, the, I think the process of going into publishing your, your own book, uh, I, I wonder how far removed it is from the decision of deciding to start your own marketing firm. And if there's any, parallels or lessons that you learned from the one that you were able to uh, implement in the other? Well, it hasn't worked so far, but <laughs> I, I did go, I did go into the, uh, to publishing my own book to self-publishing and realizing that I had to have sort of a plan. Mm-hmm. I, I had, a, had to have a, a sort of a plan of how I was going to sell this thing. Uh, and the plan hasn't worked, but it, it, uh, I'm always revising the plan. In fact, this podcast is part of that plan. Um, <laughs> so uh, that, that's one of the things I did realize because – and one of the things about writers is um, – and, and I thought I kind of came into it with a, a little bit of an advantage because uh, when I was in marketing, especially um, – well, always when I was in marketing, but especially when I was uh, working for myself, you have to sell yourself. And it's uh, I, I don't think sales is is that hard to do, but many people do. Uh, it's uh, they, they can't stand the rejection. Um, you ask writers to you're going to have to market yourself. I mean, a very good friend of mine is a very widely published poet. Uh, hasn't made a penny off of it, but the guy's published six or 700 poems. He's received awards and accolades. And these are not uh, minor awards. This mm-hmm. is big stuff. He was nominated for a push cart, oh, wow. uh, which is a big deal. Um, but if you ask this guy to do a public reading or to try to sell himself, he, he will not do it. He can't do it. He just, he can't stand the rejection. <laughs> <laughs> 
And my philosophy is, what is the worst anybody is going to say? They're going to say no. It's not like they're going to take you out and shoot you or put you up in public and laugh at you. They're going to say no. So, um, and the fact that this guy's published 700 poems tells me that he can sell himself. He just doesn't know that he can. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, uh, you know, one of the things I tell people is that, uh, uh, the the qualities that it and I'm not tooting my own horn here by no means, uh, but I think the qualities that it takes to write a novel, uh, persistence, uh, determination, uh, uh, stubbornness, uh, some insight, some sensitivity, some creativity, and the qualities that it takes to turn around and hawk that thing like it was patent medicine, <laughs> rarely exist within the same individual. They just, they kind of cancel each other out. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's hard for writers to publish their own work. And it's, um, and that's why I think you're seeing a lot of writers that are self-published. And I, I don't really follow him too much, but there's a, a gentleman out there named Joseph Conrath, I believe his name is, mm-hmm. um, who writes a blog. And, and he's pretty upfront. He says, hey, you just, you, you got to get out there and you've just got to promote yourself because that's the only way you're going to do it. Nobody's going to do it for you. I mean, even... I, I I did a lot of research. I my blog's dormant now, but I did a lot of research when I was writing my blog. Um, you know, even the even the publishers. I mean, if you if you manage to get a publisher, they're going to rely on you to do a lot of the marketing. Absolutely. Uh, the days of I, I mean, I don't know if you saw the movie Genius with Colin Firth and uh, Jude Law. It was uh, the story of Max Perkins, who was a, a, a an editor for Scribner's. And he took Jude Law's character, which was uh, Thomas Wolfe, and nursed him through this manuscript and then, you know, marketed. Those days are gone. Mm -hmm. You know, the last thing uh, an editor wants to see is a box of of unorganized papers dumped on his desk. They want to see see perfect manuscripts. Um, They want to see marketing plans. I mean, I I can't tell you how many times... I looked at the page for an agent and they said, submit your novel along with a marketing plan. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Listen, I've I've been doing this podcast for, I want to say, it's been about three years. I've done nearly 200 episodes. Uh, The great majority of the conversations I have are with authors like yourself. So I've I've talked to uh, traditionally published authors. I've talked to uh, self-published authors. I've talked to New York Times bestselling authors. Uh, I've talked to authors uh, who are who are still, you know, trying to to, to make a mark uh, in the in the in the publishing and writing world, and and I can tell you across the board, uh, whether it was you know a brand new author or a New York Times bestseller, um, I can tell you that what you say is exactly true. That that you know, even if you have a a, a traditional publisher who's putting the book out, you're the one that has to sell it. And if if you if you're not able to successfully sell that book, then chances are you're not going to get that next book deal because because that first book didn't sell. And and, you know, I'm sure part of it is part of it could just be, you know, how much time the publisher has, because, you know, in a given year, they're going to have, you know, five, 10, 15 books they're going to put out depending on how big they are. But it also comes down to to money as well, because, you know, as as you mentioned earlier, um, uh, fiction writing in general 
just doesn't generate a lot of money. Certainly, there's there's the big guys. There's Stephen King and J.K. Rowling's, and there's a there's a handful of juggernauts who are always going to be good for 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 making a lot of money for for publishers. But then there's everybody else on that list who you know there's you know it, you know as you as you referenced your friend who was a uh, uh, who was a almost won a push cart. There's Pulitzer Prize winners who you know who aren't making a living off of their writing, so so there's just not a lot of money in it. And so for that reason, right, these publishers um, they can't really afford to financially invest in in marketing all of their authors, let alone uh, say a relatively new author or ironically an an author who you know like say say somebody like Stephen King, chances are he's going to get more money put into uh, marketing his book, even though ironically. He doesn't need it, so, so, so what you're saying is so, so right on the money that, that whatever you do, whether you publish yourself or you publish with a, tra- a traditional publisher, ultimately, the 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 responsibility of marketing and selling this book, it's going to fall on your shell on your shoulders, either way, and and, and I think with a lot of authors, um, part of the um, uh, part of the gratification of of getting a publisher is is the idea that. They're going to take care of it. I'll tell the story, and they've got the rest. And then you know that rude awakening of, cool. You know they 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 published the book for you, and they and they 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 designed it, and they they edited it, and they got a nice cover, and they they got into you know the distribution channels. So it's on Amazon. Maybe it's on the on the shelf at Barnes and Noble for a couple of weeks. But now, but now you've got to sell it, and if you've not mentally prepared yourself for that, it can be a difficult road. Whereas when you go into it uh, as, a, as an independent publisher, because you've done everything yourself up to that point, by the time it comes to marketing the book, it doesn't make the marketing easier. But I think that mentality of I've done everything else myself so far. So then the, just the, the natural next step is to, is to start marketing it yourself. And myself, I don't, I don't have a marketing background uh, at, at all. So it, it's been, it's been, my, I published my first book in 2011. So since then, it's just sort of been just on the job training, just trying to do my best to figure out how to, how to market myself and market, uh, market my book. And, right. and, and then the one thing I could definitely say is that, um, uh, <clears throat> talking to other authors who've, who've enjoyed success is there's really no, there's no silver bullet. There's no one, there's no one path. Everybody has a very unique path that, that's some combination of hard work, stubbornness, and and, and good fortune, um, and so and so with yourself, you know, you kind of talked about uh, you know, and I think self deprecating that uh, the plan's not going as well as you wanted, but but the truth is, that's how that's how I think that's how all all, all these novels start, and we just sort of feel our way through the process, and uh, and and even with my book, there's with you know, I've I've had there's there's been I've I've enjoyed certain success with my novels, but some of the success I've enjoyed, they're not necessarily things that I can reproduce. They're not they're not things that I can sort of reverse engineer and figure out what I did with that because a lot of it was a lot of it was good fortune, being in the the right place at the right time, having the right person take notice of me, and and I have no idea how or why, but I'm just glad they did, and just things that I can't reproduce. So then, then I know that the only thing that I can really reproduce are I can I can tell the stories, I can put the books out, and then uh, and then I can just sort of keep on that grind of trying to <laughs> trying to find something that works. So, 
So, so honestly, with this first book, I, you know, you're 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 right on path. You're you're not. I don't think you're not doing anything that you should be doing. Um, and and of course, you know, being on this podcast, I'm flattered that this is part of the plan. Well, you know, and, and the, to go back a little bit, I think there's two things. Uh, number one, I, I think that for a lot of writers, whether they realize it or not, um, the public in, the publishing industry, in my estimation, is running scared. Yeah. Um, they don't know. I mean, between uh, there's a whole lot of factors that play into it. Uh, Amazon sure, surely is one. Uh, Kindle is another one. Uh, self-publishing uh, is, is certainly another one. Uh, fan fiction, although I don't know a whole lot about it, and, and uh, um, what I do know about it, I don't like. But um, I, I think all those things basically, people are running scared. Um, the publishing industry is running scared. They see what they see as a threat to the status quo. Mm -hmm. uh, and whenever you see those things, um, the people that that think they're in control, they tend to go batshit crazy. <laughs> and they just kind of hunker down and pretend this is not happening. And I think that there's a certain mentality within the publishing industry of that's what's happening. Um, is, is that the, the status quo is being threatened and, and the truth be told, it's always been threatened. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the other thing is, uh, in, in terms of for writers today who, who choose to self publish, um, I go back to a, uh, a quote from Lee Trevino, uh, the golfer, who said, uh, the harder I practice, the luckier I get. <laughs> and I think it's a matter of you just keep on doing stuff and you change it up and uh, someday your novel's going to fall into the right person's hands. And uh, from there it's going to be, it's, it's just going to go crazy. Um, and one of the things I do, and I don't do it enough, I want to do it more, is I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, there's... Um, there's a website out there called the Little Free Library. And what it is is a guide to people who choose to set up a sort of a self, uh, self-running library um, in front of their house. Um, they'll put together what looks like an oversized mailbox. They'll seat it with a couple of books. And it's basically, it's an honor system. You walk by, you take one, you leave one. You take one, you leave one. Sometimes you take one, sometimes you don't leave any, sometimes you come back and you leave a few. Um, and uh, uh, I, I've seen a few of them around, but if you get on the website, there's a guide to them. You can put in your zip code and they'll show you where the nearest one is. And uh, I've actually, there's one in Laguna Beach. My wife and I go to Laguna Beach quite a bit, and I walk past one every time I go up there, and I've left, uh, I left my, a copy of my novel in there twice now. Uh, and I always subscribe it. I'll just say left by the author on such and such a date. Enjoy the story and, uh, and sign it and include. I had some promotional bookmarks uh, printed up and I throw in a handful of bookmarks into the book, leaving it there thinking, hey, you never know what's going to happen. Somebody might pick it up and they might be, you know, a producer or something. You never mm -hmm. know. But just I'm trying to do all these things that sort of just spread the seeds. I love that. I love that idea. And also I... For for me, uh, a, a big part of the joy of, of of being my own publisher is that I, I I have the I have the room to be to to be creative. So you know, as do you. So so to to, to have an idea like just taking the book and dropping it off uh, in, in in one of those mail was it what was it called the the. I think it's called a little free library. Yeah, I've never heard of that, but I I I, I love that. 
but then the idea of just putting one of your own books there in a bookmark and, and leaving a note, uh, you know, it, or again, uh, like like this podcast, the 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 two primary reasons I even started this podcast is the first one I just genuinely enjoy podcasts. It's it's one of my very favorite forms of entertainment. And then also, just in terms of, of promotion and, and marketing, I just figured it would be just one more way just to put my my name out into the world and put my voice out into the world. And uh, and I could sort of network and uh, intersect with all these other authors, and we can kind of cross-pollinate. And it was ultimately at its core, aside from me having a genuine uh, love for it, it really was just thinking of one more way to help bring attention to, 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 to the main thing, which is... Uh, which is which is the writing um so so i I think with with all of those things you're 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 totally doing all the right stuff because here's the other thing is it's it's and and i'm not telling you anything you don't know but it's so difficult to 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 get traction or to or or to get um a significant uh, amount of, of of attention for um for for your book but then the other thing again that I really love about being my own publisher is you know is it's it it's a lifelong endeavor like the the effort never has to stop where if you have a traditional publisher you know you're one of many authors that they have and you're in a particular year you're going to be one of several books that come out and they can only they they can only afford to invest a particular amount of attention in your book and then once once you know once the time that they can afford has has exhausted, they move on to the next one, and then your yeah. book just becomes part of this backlog and possibly just kind of disappears. Where when it's your own book, it's a lifelong endeavor because you're always going to be invested because this is your book, and so you're you're always going to give yourself the opportunity to catch a break because you're always going to be you know uh, in 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 the mindset of promoting this book. Yeah, it gives you a lot more control, and again, it. Uh, I mean, I go to the. Uh, uh, I, I go to Costco. I'm going to go to Costco today, and I always go by the book table. And uh, I just noticed that table is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> uh, and and you're seeing the same names all the time. Um, and it's uh, it's just to a certain extent, it's just kind of sad. Yeah. Because yeah. um, uh, you know, like I said, it's just it's getting smaller all the time, and it's just uh, um. You know the chances. I mean, I think the two biggest retailers of of books now are Costco and Walmart, um, and uh, you know, not to stereotype Walmart. I hate to do that. I want to keep my mind like a clear lake. But when I go to Walmart, you just don't see a lot of people that read. <laughs> but they manage to be one of the biggest retailers. So that's going to yeah. give me a lot of a lot of complaints from people who go to Walmart, which includes me. But <laughs> but there's stories in Walmart too. For for goodness sakes, I mean, I. I had an incredible experience at Walmart that I've never had at any other retailer, um, which I thought was was really interesting. Maybe I'll write a story about it someday. Um, With the uh, uh, well, actually, before I go forward, is, is it an experience that you can you can share? Or are you going to keep that one uh, tucked away for now? Well, I thought it was interesting. I was uh, I was working for for the for an ad agency at the time, uh, about to become partner and enter the nightmare of my life, and. Um, <laughs> I uh, I left the house one morning and I needed a battery for my watch. Uh, my my watch wasn't working and I'm an important guy. I, I work for an advertising agency. For goodness <laughs> sakes, I gotta have a watch that works. So, on the way down, I stopped at Walmart and and uh, 
I got in there and uh, I got, I, you know, Walmart, you go to the jewelry case is where they sell the batteries for the watches. And uh, I'm there at, at five minutes after eight and there's nobody there and uh, to, to help me. And on top of that, there's somebody ahead of me. So it's five after eight and I, I got to get to the office. I've got no, I got a meeting and, and uh, so 10 minutes after eight, somebody finally shows up, this young girl, probably maybe going to community college, maybe just graduated from high school. And the person in front of me wants to shop. I know exactly what I want. I need a battery for my watch. This person wants to shop. <laughs> so finally, in about 8.11, and I'm just, the only way I can tell time is my cell phone. Um, this girl turns to me and she says, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I, I need a battery for my watch. And so she looks at the watch, opens it up, takes the battery, puts it back in, and it puts the new battery in and, and hands it to me. And by the way, the the hot tip at Walmart is that you always go to the jewelry counter because they can check you out there. You don't have to go stand the long lines. <laughs> so I said, what do I owe you? And she says, you don't owe me anything. Hmm. I said, why? And she says, you, you shouldn't have waited as long as you did. You don't owe me anything. Don't worry about it. I was blown away. I, I used to give, <laughs> I used to give marketing seminars, uh, seminars on marketing. Um, and I would relay this experience and say, now, how many people think that that girl gave away company property without permission? And you get people that raise their hand. And then my next question is, how many people think that she just made a Walmart customer for life? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that I've told this story hundreds of times. And, and that experience just always remains with me. Uh, that just somebody in a minimum wage job made a decision that impacted a customer um, beyond what she ever expected mm -hmm. and uh, i just think it was an interesting story i tell it all the time oh that's a great story that's a really great story uh so in in, in october of 2016 and uh and, and you touched on it earlier but uh that's when officially your debut novel rules for giving came out so at that point you had you'd uh, uh made an effort with uh, uh connecting with agents and and publishers and and trying to go the traditional publishing route uh with the uh with the encouragement of your wife you decided to go the route of publishing the book yourself and then that journey eventually got you to October 2016 with with rules for giving so uh for, for anybody listening who uh who who's not familiar with the book what would you like them to know about it um, Rules for Giving tells the story um, of, of when we meet him, he's 19 years old. His name is Gavin Oliver, and there's meaning in that name, by the way, um, who visits a, in 1971, uh, when he's 19 years old, visits a California abortion clinic with his, his pregnant girlfriend. Um, and the, the result is not quite what they expect. And uh, the relationship doesn't survive the trauma, and they part ways. And 36 years later, that secret comes back to haunt them, um, which is pretty much the nutshell uh, of Rules for Giving. But, um, you know, I've incorporated my experiences in the advertising agency because, like I said, this this culminates 36 years later when when these two people have to come back together again. Fate and circumstances pull them together. I, um, I guess my biggest badge of honor that I had with that novel is that uh, I went to the Santa Barbara Writers Conference. Uh, this was back in 2013 mm -hmm. when I still had not even thought about uh, uh, self-publishing. And um, I read the first chapter uh, in a group of writers. Um, 
uh, in a critique group. And um, the first chapter opens up in the abortion clinic. And uh, I, I think I read three or four pages and the moderator said, okay, you can stop now. And a lady in the back of the room said, can I breathe now? <laughs> so I, 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 that's sort of, I realized I'd struck a nerve. Um, you know, one of the things I, I tried to do, well, I, I really didn't try to do it in the novel. Most of the things that, that happen, the good things are things that happen without you intending them to, um, is, uh, that I, I found myself making some social commentary, mm -hmm. uh, not just abortion, but uh, in, in terms of the homeless uh, and in terms of LGBT issues. Um, and I, I sort of pride myself on the fact that I think I made the social commentary without beating you over the head with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I've certainly read some novels that made social commentary, but they just beat you over the head with it. And I think it's it's very much a an art of... Uh, somebody, something somebody used to say, people used to say a long time ago when I first started writing, and it took me a long time to figure it out, is show me, don't tell me. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's really important. That's, the, that's, a, that's an important skill for a writer to learn is, is show and don't tell. And it's, it's something I just, uh, you know, even now after having read a novel, I feel like, you know, gosh, I could have said that's that better <laughs> or, um, you know, there's a better way to say that. It's something I have to to relearn all the time. And even even when I'm writing, when I'm writing uh, or reading, rather, um, I'm reading a book right now by um, a, a fairly well accomplished author. And I'm I'm thinking, oh, you could have done that better. Uh, <laughs> so, But I think it's. Uh, yeah, yeah. One of the things about if you've written for any length of time, you become a really critical reader, and you start. Uh, it's it's difficult to just read a book and say, "Well, like you could have, I probably could have said that better, buddy." It's um, true. So, that's very um, true. Yeah. Also, with the social commentary thing, I'm I'm very much on the same uh, page as you. Where um, I don't mind uh, seeing it in the stories that I read. Um, uh, I, I it's definitely something that I that I enjoy uh, weaving into the stories that I tell. But very much like you, I don't. I don't want to beat the, the 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 reader over the head with whatever the commentary might very well be, and so so for me, it's always it's I, I keep it as as much as I can. What whatever the commentary is, I I try to keep it in in the subtext, and uh, and have it be one of those things where if it resonates with you, um, then then I'm happy for that, but. If it doesn't, if if you don't notice it at all, then 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 hopefully, the the, the story on the surface still made it uh, an enjoyable read. But if you were, if you enjoy the story and then beneath the surface picked up on some of the uh, the bigger ideas, it's something I'm happy for. But it's it's uh, I, I it's not it's nothing again. I I. I <clears throat> I, I don't want to beat the reader over the head with some of my ideas about uh, society and in the world, but also as a writer, when you're creating, I, I think it's it's it would be even if you even if you tried to avoid it, it would be nearly impossible for your just your your thoughts on the world to to not seep into the story that you're telling. Yeah, you can't. the The thing that's going to lose a reader really quick is if you're preachy. Yeah, uh, and you just you can't be preachy about it. Uh, and it, I mean, I can think of one book I read right away. And I, again, I'll, I'll, the name was Withheld to Protect the Guilty. Um, and uh, it was just, it was preachy. I, was, I, I got 10 pages into the book. I'm thinking, oh my God, 
<laughs> this is 10 pages into the book and I'm okay I get it I get it <laughs> now with the with rules for giving because it's still a very new book at this point it's really only a few months old uh have you have you had an opportunity at this point to start getting some some feedback from uh from readers and uh and if so what's uh what's that uh, been like you know in, in uh most of the feedback has been good uh you know, a lot of people will buy the cop will buy a copy of it and and uh, and then not read it. <laughs> so, uh, and I guess I'm guilty of that too. I buy books and I don't read them. Uh, I just think, you know, when I see the book, God, I got to read that, and then I I bring it home and I've got two or three books on my list I want to read, including the one I'm reading currently. So I won't get around to it for I don't know a couple of years maybe. I yeah. mean, I I can think of a book that I bought on the bestseller. It was a bestseller when I bought it. Uh, probably five, six, seven years ago, and uh, and and actually just read it recently, only because I was channel surfing one morning and found the movie version on TV, <laughs> on uh, on on Netflix, and watched the movie and said, "Shit!" I mean, I haven't read this book yet. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, there's um, and I guess you just can't you can't expect that everybody that that buys the book is going to read it, um. One of the things that that um, that I've tried to do, and, and, and that's working to a certain extent, and again, some of it has happened by accident, is uh, trying to get the book clubs to uh, to select it for their monthly read. Mm, yeah. um, and I've that's happened a couple of times, um, and, um, and and it's every time I see an uptick in sales, I'll I, I, I'll hear a rumor that some book club is is looking to uh, trying to evaluate it about whether or not they want to select it for their monthly read and then suddenly a couple of months later i'll see an uptick on sales on uh, <laughs> on kindle or amazon and think yeah okay maybe that it was selected um but it doesn't take much for me to see an uptick in sales i mean because the sales are are pretty <laughs> low but uh i guess one of the things that keeps uh, me going is that um the movie the martian with matt damon yeah. was based on a book that was originally self-published I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, it was originally self-published. And actually, if you read the book, you can see that, yeah, okay, this guy's probably not the best uh, writer in the world, although the story is compelling. It's a compelling story. Um, I, I think schooled writers would probably look at the book and go, yeah, well, they could have done a little bit more here, a little bit more there, but it's a great story. It's a compelling story. And uh, and he finally he self-published the story, and it was finally picked up by a publisher who I – I think if I read between the lines correctly, they made some corrections before they published it under their name. Mm -hmm. um, but again, um, self-published book, and uh, uh, it was uh, it was nominated for several Academy Awards. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and did very well in the box office. Yeah, and yet to to that point, and I feel this very strongly, and I'm sure you would agree with it, is that you know it's a, just by virtue of first writing the book, because I mean honestly, just writing and completing a book for me that's a victory in and of itself that's something that not a lot of people do whether it's published or not just to, to actually start and complete a novel so that's the first victory and then uh, the second victory is getting that book out into the world getting it into the marketplace getting it into uh, a place where where people can 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 come across it and buy it and, and eventually eventually read it um, so just doing those two things at all, they're they're not they're not small feats. And, and any author, it's you know, such as yourself, 
um, shouldn't take those two things for granted that they're not easy to do. And most people don't do them and they're, they're two huge victories. But then, uh, but then by, by writing the book and putting it out in the world, very similar to, to that terrific anecdote about, you know, the Martian, just by writing it and putting it out in the world, you, you now give yourself an opportunity to catch a break where if you didn't write the book and put it out there, you're not going to catch that break because there's no book to catch you a break. So, so even even if uh, in terms of you know book sales or 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 promotions or whatever, even if it's in you know, in in leaner times, just the fact that it's out there, you've you've given yourself an opportunity to 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 catch a break, and then you know just by perpetually, you know just just getting out there and and making people aware of it as best as you can, um, you know that's it's really all you can do. And and you know there's if, if for me too, and I've talked to many authors who sort of share this as this idea. Um, we very much focus on just on the long game. Like it, it would be wonderful if tomorrow lightning struck, and uh, and we became authors who were known all around the world. Um, but. In all and this kind of this kind of takes me back to sales. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's a couple of things and uh, there's a couple of sayings in sales. One of them is, the sale like the sale you're guaranteed not to make is the one where you don't make that first phone call. Mm. Yeah. And the other the other saying, and this one is really pertinent too. It depends on what you're selling, uh, but uh, you know it usually takes nine conversations to close a sale. Mm. The problem is most salesmen quit after the fifth one. <laughs> So, um, yeah, you can't, I mean, I mean, John Grisham is probably a good example. Uh, he wrote a time to kill, uh, which by the way is a great story and it was a, it was a good movie too. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it, it didn't sell, just did not sell. Uh, you know, he sold it, he sold it out of the trunk of his car, which is not too far from what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then he wrote the firm and that was a big hit. And suddenly the publisher goes back and looks at a time to kill and goes, oh, gee whiz, this was a good story. And, uh, so, and so when they re-released that book, in fact, they did, um, it, it had very good sales and it ended up uh, being made into a movie. So, um, you know, it, 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 it just takes the damnedest thing to, to get traction. I, um, I managed to get rules for giving into the hands of a, a fellow who lives over on the west side of Los Angeles. Um, who, um, uh, like me, comes from an advertising agency background. Uh, uh, his his career was probably a little bit more stellar than mine, um, and uh, has sort of gotten out of that business. And now he writes documentaries and screenplays, uh, but mostly for documentaries. And I got a copy to him, thinking that, well, who knows who he knows. Mm -hmm. And uh, he called me up and he was talking. He said, "Well, here's what I can tell you: you wrote your first novel. It's time to write the second one." <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, and that was, that was that. And some other advice was advice well taken. I, I, you know, yeah. It, what do you do after you write the first novel? You write the second one. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and a lot of it is, you know, it's it, uh, another friend of mine has said that too. Well, you know, you got to write the second one because the first time you can do it. Yeah, you did it, but now it's time to write the second one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, listen, Tim, I'm going to, we'll, we'll go ahead and start wrapping up. You've been terrifically generous with your time and I've greatly enjoyed this conversation. Uh, uh, before we kind of get into wrapping up, uh, if the, I 
if there's uh, any way that uh, folks listening, if they want to learn more about you and your book or just any ways of uh, being able to, to connect with you, um, you know, please go ahead and share that. Uh, I have a website. It's called rulesforgiving.com. Uh, you know, I really had to think all, all night for that one. <laughs> and um, uh, you can purchase the book on the website. Uh, you can read an excerpt. Um, I like to think the first 10 pages are pretty um, uh, uh, pretty captivating, although uh, a few women have told me that they thought it was a little bit too intense for them. Mm. Um, <laughs> but um, I um, uh and it's available on Amazon as well, uh, both in, in Kindle and, and in, uh, uh, in paperback. The, um, you know, I, I can't impress upon, in, uh, upon writers out there, especially if you've yet to write your first book or anything. Uh, you know, again, it goes back to T-shirts. Sometimes I just feel like my life is, is a T-shirt mentality. <laughs> um, I saw a, a T-shirt at the L.A. Festival of Books a couple of years ago. And in front of the T-shirt, it said, uh, even if it's crap, get it down on the page. Um, you know, nothing happens until you start writing mm -hmm. and, and that, I think that's the, one of the big blockades for writers is, uh, they're just, they feel like they got a good story. I certainly fell into this classification, but I just never started writing it down. And, um, you know, to quote Ernest, Ernest Hemingway, the first draft of anything is shit. Mm -hmm. And it's true. It's true, because because again, to quote Ernest Hemingway, writing is rewriting. You've just uh, and I that's probably the, the the thing that I think is most important as a writer is realizing that you have to rewrite mm -hmm. uh, all the time, over and over and over. Um, uh, and and that's one of the things that when you're when you're when you're a student, when you're in high school, and even later in college, you don't really come to appreciate. Um, I, one of my sons uh, came to me and, and wanted me to give him some help editing a, a piece he was doing for one of his college classes. And uh, I failing to realize that the mentality in academia is don't say something in one word when you can use 10. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, edited this paper for him and he didn't get that good a grade because that's just it tends to be the mentality that they just want, you know, more is better. And <laughs> I, I think in writing fiction, uh, less is better. Um, you know, and, and going back to that movie Genius, um, telling the story between uh, Max Perkins and, and, uh, and Tom Hardy, Thomas Hardy, was it was it Hardy? God, I can't remember no, now. I think you got but, it right. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah, and they there's this one part of the movie that I think only a writer can appreciate, where they take this passage that is two pages long, and and beautifully written, and by the time they're done with it, it's one sentence, and that is just <laughs> so much of writing. Uh, you know, uh, a friend of mine says I've never had an editor ask. For, for me to to give him more words it's always less and uh, you can pretty much make anything better by reducing the number of words involved um so that's that's something i and that's really hard to teach i think it's as a writer you just have to acquire that ability to mm -hmm. be able to go through and 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 critically question the ability the right for every word to be in your manuscript um uh one of the writers that's kind of in, I, I haven't read that much by him, but the books I have read have, have always been good ones. Uh, and he unfortunately passed away was, um, uh, Pat Conroy, mm -hmm. uh, the great Santini, Prince of Tides. Um, 
any number of books. And uh, I remember reading The Prince of Tides, and I think that book was 700 words long, and I don't think there was one wasted, 700 pages long, and I don't think there was one wasted word. Mm. It's 700 pages. It was just, it was just amazing. There was nothing there that, that, that if you'd taken it out, the story would have changed. Um, every, every word had a right to be there. And if it didn't have a right to be there, it wasn't there. Um, yeah, I, so, I, I, I think that's out, outstanding, outstanding advice and uh, a great viewpoint. Cause I, I, <clears throat> I, I totally agree with the, with my own writing, you know, less is more very much have a, a minimalist, you know, mentality. If I can, uh, if I can, if if I can say something in, in in one sentence instead of one paragraph, I always go for for the one sentence because, uh, as you were saying with your example of Prince of Tides, that uh, over the course of the the entire story, if you can if if you can get to where it's so lean that nothing is wasted, um, that has just a very satisfying impact uh, on the reading experience ultimately. Yeah, and I'm uh, uh, the uh, I, I like Cormac McCarthy. Um, although a lot of his writing is pretty dark, um, but I, I think as a, his style, I really love his style. Um, I, I, I love the concept of, of, uh, his dialogue is so good. He'll go, he'll go two or three pages in dialogue between characters, uh, and not, and not have a quote tag. Mm-hmm. And the whole time, you know, exactly who's talking. Um, uh, even though there's, it's, it's, it's only dialogue and, 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 and Cormac McCarthy's famous for not using for his, his, his very spare use of punctuation, yeah. including no quote marks at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's enough to drive you crazy, but, uh, he, he manages to pull it off. Yeah. Um, I agree. It, it took me, uh, the, the first time I read a Cormac McCarthy novel, it took me a little while to kind of adjust to, to what he was doing, but then, but then you do. And, and I, 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 in my mind, and I don't know if this is his mentality, but in my mind, I always kind of connect what he's doing to, uh, sort of the, 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 the older tradition of oral storytelling, that if you were sitting in a room, just telling somebody in a story, you wouldn't differentiate between quotation marks and, and, uh, an apostrophe or whatever. You would just tell the story. And I, and I often sort of feel like, He's he's tapping into that, uh, you know, when when just in terms of of um, the actual writing. And then I also wonder. I, I I've told myself the story in my head that maybe when he first began writing and he got his first typewriter and it didn't have the button for the quotation mark, so he just started telling stories <laughs> like that, and, be, and he just got used to it. So for me, it could be either or. And, and in a way, I hope I never find out what the <laughs> what the truth is. <laughs> Actually, that's a pretty good observation. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the quote marks didn't work, so we just didn't have quote marks. <laughs> and there was my conversation with Timothy Sunderland. And I've got to tell you, I was actually so pleased by his his reaction to my observation about uh, Cormac McCarthy and the possibility that his very first typewriter simply didn't have the uh, quotation mark button. And so that's why he started writing books like that. It, it really is just a thought that it's a story I've told in my head more than once. Uh, and frankly, that might that might have been the first time I ever said it out loud. And so to, to hear Tim's reaction, that was actually very cool. So anyway, uh, that was a wonderful conversation. I, I know I enjoy talking to Tim, so I can only imagine that you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. At least I, I certainly hope you did. 
Uh, if you haven't already done so, seriously, what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon.com to get Tim's book, Rules for Giving. Just remember, before you go there, first go to the official website, MartinLestrapsShow.com. Go to the shop page, hit the Amazon banner, and then go get yourself Tim's book. And you're going you're gonna to get the book, which is going to help out Tim. You're now going to have a great book, which is going to help out you. And then Amazon kicks back a few pennies our way. So you help the podcast. So in one swift move, you basically become the best, greatest person in the whole wide world. And you want that, don't you? I want that for you. So go to Amazon and get yourself a copy of Tim's book, Rules for Giving. Uh, as I wrap up, I just want to thank Tim again for, for joining me on this week's episode. Loved talking to him. I definitely want to have him back on the show because uh, I'm certain he's got a whole lot uh, a whole lot uh, more stories. That just didn't, that didn't sound grammatically correct. A whole lot more. I think he's got several more stories to tell. He has a whole lot more stories to tell. I don't know. Listen, I, I, I don't have an editor uh, for, for, for language on the podcast, so I think you get what I'm saying. Tim's got some good shit to talk about. Pardon my French. I don't know why I said pardon my French. I've said much worse than the, <laughs> I've said much worse than shit on the show before. So, so whatever. Anyway, point is, I want to have Tim back, and I look forward to when <laughs> to when that happens. Uh, also, I want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, particularly, I want to thank my my loyal listeners who join me every week on the podcast. I never take you guys for granted. Thank you so much. But I also want to send out a thank you to any first-time listeners. If this is your very first experience with the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, particularly if you showed up to listen to my conversation with Timothy Sunderland, I want to thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the experience. And if you did, please go backwards and, and listen to some of my other conversations. I've had, uh, goodness, I have no idea, well over 100 conversations with different authors. So, so if you enjoyed this... Um, there's a lot more of this, where this came from. That was, uh, I'm, I'm going to say that, uh, that would not get me a job at, uh, at one of, uh, one of Tim's marketing firms. But, but anyway, the point being, if you like this conversation, um, and you like hearing conversation with authors talking about writing and publishing and storytelling, you'll find lots of that on the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour. So while you're waiting for, for next week's episode, whatever it happens to be, then, uh, then, you know, go backwards, listen to some old episodes. I think you'd, I think you'd enjoy it. And quite frankly, I would appreciate it. That's going to do it for this week's episode, episode number 160 of the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour. One more thanks to everybody, just an all-encompassing thank you, because uh, every week I'm just so grateful, one, that I get to do the show, and two, that all of you join me and listen every week. Again, it's, uh, it is it is not a small thing, and it, 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 uh, it brightens my day. It really does. So thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you all for, for tuning in every week. If this was your first time, listen, I, I'm basically repeating myself. I know that. Let's go ahead and wrap it up. Until next time. I will see you on the other side.